listener production. Hi, and welcome back to Broadsheet Melbourne Around Town. I'm Publications Director Nick Connellan and the co-host of this Brief Guide to Melbourne. We're in summer programming mode, which means revisiting some of our favourite episodes of 2023. What we've got for you this time is a chat between Broadsheet's Editorial Director Kutcher Vuktal and world-famous chocolatier Kirsten Tibbles. What's great about this one is its utility. Kirsten shares some really great advice about what kind of equipment us home bakers really need versus what we can skimp on, how to store chocolate properly, and she also demystifies the process of tempering chocolate at home, which can sometimes feel a bit scary, but is actually quite easy. Enjoy. So at 13, you were basically running your own home cake cake business, I would say. You were taking orders from family and friends and baking, you know, 12 dozen cakes in a weekend. At 15, you begin a patisserie apprenticeship. And then that was that. From there, you've basically just gone from strength to strength and chocolate to more chocolate. Yeah, I haven't really deviated. I probably had a different adolescence in the fact that I didn't go to school. I was unwell. So I pretty much did cakes full time from home from the age of 12 or so. And, you know, I haven't looked back. And then found this love, which you were able to kind of, I guess, take into a career, not just a hobby. It became something that you've done with your life. We're all lucky because we get to benefit from that. Before we get onto anything, and we've got lots to talk about, you've got a lot happening in your life right now. I just wanted to find out if you, and maybe it's like asking someone about choosing their favorite child, but milk chocolate, dark chocolate, white chocolate, if you could only take one to a desert island, which one would it be? I'd have to take dark chocolate. Why? I just think that dark chocolate, you can pick up more nuances in the chocolate flavor itself. With milk chocolate, you've got milk powder added and you've got more sugar and white chocolate. It really isn't really considered a chocolate. Oh, it's not? No, I see it as a confection because it doesn't have any of the chocolate flavor. It has cocoa butter, milk powder and sugar. So why is it called, why do they call it chocolate? It depends what country you're in actually as to what they refer to it as. Where is it not referred to as white chocolate? Europe, it's not referred to as, it's still, I think, commercially and as a retail product, you would refer to it as chocolate, absolutely. Mm. But the legal definition, no. It's, I'm a white chocolate fan, so I'm... Oh, sorry. I could, I could, go, down that, I could go down that path. <laughs> Although I do think the white chocolate, um, I mean, I was a Milky Bar fan growing up okay. and that's definitely changed over time. It used to be a really creamy block and I just think a lot of those mass-produced chocolates now... Tastes a bit chalky and sugary, but I'm still going into the service stations and buying my fair (laughs) share of Cadbury. So now you have a new book out called Chocolate All Day, which you describe uh, in the introduction as 224 pages of molten, chilled, gooey, classic chocolate goodness, which I'm beginning to salivate just as I read that. How does this book differ from your earlier ones? Uh, this book, I think, is my best work. I know people probably say that, but I've, as you go through your career, you have a better understanding of what people want to make, what they want to eat, mm. and really they want to make what they want to eat. But I think the biggest thing for me is if people are going to invest in ingredients and their time to create a recipe, it needs to be one of the best recipes they've ever made. And that was really the focus for the book so that if you picked any page, you could go to it and people would be impressed and wowed with what you did with as little as possible effort and as few ingredients as possible. And I think that's one of my questions is you don't have to be a very proficient baker. I see the words tempered chocolate and I start to freak out and I think about tears in a MasterChef dessert challenge 
But not every recipe in this book is for people who know how to temper chocolate or would call themselves expert bakers. No, absolutely not. And even, you know, a lot of people and maybe television shows, we could say, make tempering quite complex, but it's probably the same as whipping eggs. It's really so simple. It's a simple plastic bowl in the microwave, 30 to 15 seconds at a time till it's half liquid, half solid chocolate. And then you just stir it and it's tempered. I feel like I watched so many MasterChef finales <laughs> where the tempered chocolate went wrong. I was like, well, if, they, if they're getting it wrong, I definitely, I definitely can't make it work without, you know, I don't have the pressure of the television cameras and, you know, the judges saying like, what's going on? So one of the things as I flicked through the books and which really stood out to me was the oozy chocolate sourdough toasty. So that seems really, really doable. And there's, there's quite a few recipes in there like that. Yeah. And that comes down to you want to eat it. And that's probably something you'd make for yourself. So, you know, drenched toast, you know, a little bit stale sourdough, a little bit of sugar in there, some condensed milk, and of course, white chocolate, your favorite. Maybe that's why I'm drawn <laughs> to it. And while it's still hot, we sandwich that together with some milk chocolate chips, which just melt and ooze with sliced banana. And really, there's not much else to be done but to eat it. One of the things that you do in the book to help people understand how easy or hard a recipe is, is you've got little notes saying, this is easy, this is moderate, this is difficult, but also little tips for when this might be the perfect meal. So I'll, you know, make this one, it'll be great for a fancy brunch or this one, i.e. my sourdough chocolate toasty, great for, you know, a breakfast hit, a sweet breakfast hit. Was that important for you to make it really clear and useful for people this time around? Yeah, and I think what I've tried to incorporate is where it's best served. There's never a bad time for chocolate, let's be honest. But but I also wanted to give tips. So things like if you want to take this to the next level and it's for a birthday cake, these are some things you can do to step it up. And also some troubleshooting tips because I know when people look at things and think, oh, that's not, what, what do I do now? What have I done wrong? So there are some things like with shoe pastry, for example, if they come out and they're flat, what do you do? So I've given you tips along the way as like, don't throw it out. We what, can save what, it. What should you do? if it? That- well, if it's an eclair or if it's a shoe pastry, normally it collapses. Two reasons. You haven't cooked the flour enough on the stove mm. or you've opened the oven door too quickly. And it's let all the steam out and then they will collapse and then finish baking like that. But there's no reason you can't still cut them in half and still use it as you would. Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes me as an Eclair fan also happy. But I think that's actually a good segue. I think it would be remiss of me speaking to one of the most uh, influential, important pastry chefs in the country not to ask you some tips and questions. What are the main mistakes that you see bakers making? Because it's not it's not like you're out there writing cookbooks and, and not actually working with bakers. You run a cooking school. So what are those mistakes that you see people make time and again? I think there's quite a few and there's situations where people panic and think it's wrong, but it's actually right. You just keep stirring, it'll come together. Um, but with the oven, what people don't understand is a fan force oven temperature is very different to a conventional oven temperature. In fact, 20 degrees difference. So unless the recipe specifies you know, this is for a fan-forced oven, Mm. people don't necessarily adjust. And then on top of that, every brand and make of oven is really different. Mm. So 
the baking time, you can't just ever follow a recipe. That's one of my biggest tips. You have to know what to look for. Like, do you put a skewer in? Do you tap on the top and it bounces back? So never take it out unless you've done some of those tests yourself. And then I always just put a post-it note in the recipe and say that actually took 15 minutes more in my oven, or sometimes it's the other way. It'll take 20 minutes less. So every oven is different. And, you know, gas we work on setting one, two, three, four. So people are really trying to work that out themselves. So I think with ovens, you have to be um, open. And when you make it the first time, do lots of testing of your own. I think that note idea is excellent. What do you think is one piece of equipment that people really should invest in? And then what's another one that just grab it? Any any old one will do. Um. I think a stand mixer is important if you really like baking because Mm. it gives you free hands. If you've got a hand blender that you have to hold, it's very difficult to, you know, be reaching across the bench and grabbing things at the same time. Um, Silicon spatulas, I think, are essential in the kitchen, but probably any will do. Mm. Um, I like KitchenAid. I'm not endorsed by them or anything. I just find that they're really easy to work with and to lift And things that you don't think about with different mixes, and I've worked with many, when you're adding things like eggs or sugar syrup, are they going to go in and hit the mix and not the whisk or the side of the bowl sort of things? Mm. What about storing chocolate? I've already picked up a few great tips from your book. I'm not going to store chocolate near spices anymore because apparently that can, they can take on that that aroma. Yeah, they'll even take on garlic. So if you store them near strong aromas... They will take on that smell. And then when you're eating it, you're like, what's happened there? It tastes a bit like cinnamon. wasn't meant to. And then I also am guilty of putting my chocolate in the fridge. Is that is that is that okay or is that we shouldn't be doing that? Look, I think in Melbourne we can have some really hot days. I wouldn't recommend eating chocolate from the fridge or working with it from the fridge, but you can store it in the fridge if it's really hot in your room, yeah. but wrap it so well. And let it come back to room temperature before you unwrap it or else you get moisture and condensation on the surface. So then when you melt your chocolate, it'll be a little bit thick. You have judged at competitions around the world and I always imagine that must be a pretty incredible experience. Which country have you been to and been the most surprised by in in those competitions over time? I was president of the jury of taste for the World Chocolate Masters in Paris. So that was incredible. So I oversaw really the taste component of the competition and the 20 international judges. And then we had 20 international competitors. And I think what people, the world has become a much smaller place and countries that you don't, you know, consider strong in elements of patisserie and chocolate. Like Mm. the normal ones are like, oh, France, you know, Belgium. and Mm. um, But, you know, Greece did so well in the World Chocolate Masters and Greece is in a country that you, you know, instantly recognise. So I think that's important is to keep an open mind. And I think having having competed internationally myself, I have a better understanding of what the the competitors have gone through to get to this point. Um, you know, this is the the work of two years really come together to compete and it's really rigorous training generally to get to that point. So having an understanding, you have to give them the best possible position and space and environment for them to succeed. Is it different to a MasterChef style competition? I mean, if, if that's what I'm imagining, it's it's not that. 
It's not MasterChef because MasterChef, obviously, they want a little bit of jeopardy and a little bit of entertainment as yeah. well. So, you know, if the pastry's stuck to the bench, you know, yeah. and they're doing it for the first time where these are people that would have made that dish probably 200 times before competing with it. So very, very different where the poor MasterChef contestants are seeing it for the first time and, you know, have never done some yeah. of those techniques. So hats off to them nice. for pulling I'm it together. Always impressed. I always say uh, to my family when we're watching, I would have been in tears <laughs> from minute one of the challenge. You mentioned there are certain countries that are known for whether it's chocolate making or for patisserie. You would have sampled a lot of chocolate now. Who's the best? Oh, I really like Belgium chocolate because it plays to all the things that I like about chocolate. You know, it has notes of caramel, nuts, mm. beautiful balances of the cocoa flavour. Um, that's really me. French chocolate is a lot more acidic. Mm, okay. um, so me, it's a Belgium chocolate. Would I be able to taste that or is that because you've got a really honed palate? I think if I put Swiss French and Belgium chocolate in front of you and I told you what to look for, you'd pick out which one is which. Okay, great. I'll, I'll go do that test myself, <laughs> myself later. How much chocolate did you have to try at these competitions? Well, it's not straight chocolate, so it's cake. So it's lots okay. of sugar and other things involved okay. in there as well. You do cleanse a palate with water. Okay. You can smell coffee beans actually, which is similar to perfume. So there's lots of little tips and things you can do, but it's broken up. After you do a competition like that, do you not want to look at pastry or chocolate for 10 months? No. <laughs> it actually does the opposite. It inspires you because you're always learning and you see things and you think, oh, I could do that and I could turn that around and do that. And it inspires me to create things myself, actually. So let's get to this collaboration that I think ice cream fans will be very excited to hear about. And that's your latest collaboration with Buller's Murray Street Ice Creamery. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's been a year of work. I created three desserts, which um, then Buller Ice Cream took and created stick ice creams with those three desserts. So passion fruit panna cotta, lemon meringue tart and berry rebellion tart. So No chocolate. They're all dipped in chocolate. Oh, they're dipped yes. in chocolate. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they're all dipped in chocolate. But, yeah, really trying to replicate the flavour profile and the texture of those desserts in ice cream has been an amazing experience. Uh, a lot of back and forth and many, many tweaks to really get the perfect ice cream in terms of flavour, texture and something that you're really going to find difficult to stop at one. They sound like good flavours uh, for a spring and summer period. Where can you get them? You can get them at all major supermarkets. So they'll just be uh, rolling in the month of October. Um, yeah, so the you should at least get two flavours in the supermarket, if not three. Very good. Now, before I let you go, I've got one more question, and this might be blasphemous, and you'll probably look at me and think, I don't need to do that. I've got my own at home. But when you go to the supermarket or the service station, do you have a favourite chocolate that you can't resist? No, I think, and that's people say, really? When my job, and I People probably don't understand. I have other pastry chefs at Savor and I write recipes and they test. So especially when I've been out of the kitchen, I'll walk in and I can have seven things to taste. Mm. So then um, that's a lot of sugar to process in a day. Right. So generally outside of Savor, I don't eat a lot of sugar unless there's something I think, oh, that sounds amazing. I'm really going to try that. But I do try to limit it. It's all about balance. Right. And the volume of sugar would shock you that I eat at Savor. <laughs> so I, 
I'm very impressed, even looking at all the, I mean, this whole book, which is the cookbook, which is filled with the kind of images when you imagine in your head, you know, what does a beautiful chocolate layer cake look like? That's in your book. And I, I was, as I was reading through, thinking, I don't know how she, like, it's, it's one thing to, the idea of eating chocolate every day seems great, but maybe in the, in reality, it can get repetitive, but it sounds like you have times and places where you make room for it. Absolutely. And I think the beauty of what we do is that I never create something the same. So it's always something new, something different. Where I think if people are in production and they're making the same chocolate, there's no need to taste it because it's perfect and you don't need to keep testing. And look, if you look at the images in your cookbook, I understand why the Kit Kat or Mars bar at the service station (laughs) is not that appealing. Thanks, Kirsten. Thank you. That's it for today. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell your friends and leave us a review. And to make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe or follow us wherever you're listening now. You can find new episodes in your feed every Monday, Wednesday and Friday morning. Listener.